I'll be reading from Luke 14, 7 to 11, and 22, verses 24 to 30 from the Common English Bible. When Jesus noticed how the guests sought out the best seats at the table, he told them a parable. When someone invites you to a wedding celebration, don't take your seat in the place of honor. Someone more highly regarded than you could have been invited by your host. The host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give your seat to this other person. Embarrassed, you will take your seat in the least important place. Instead, when you receive an invitation, go and sit in the least important place. When your host approaches you, he will say, friend, move up here to a better seat. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. All who lift themselves up will be brought low, and those who make themselves low will be lifted up. An argument broke out among the disciples over which one of them should be regarded as the greatest. But Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles rule over their subjects, and those in authority over them are called friends of the people. But that's not the way it will be with you. Instead, the greatest among you must become like a person of lower status, and the leader like a servant. So which is the greater, the one who is seated at the table or the one who serves at the table? Isn't it the one who is seated at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are the ones who have continued with me in my trials, and I confer royal power on you, just as my father granted royal power to me. Thus, you will eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones overseeing the 12 tribes of Israel. My name is Megan, and I'm the teaching pastor here at Trinity. I invite you to pray with me as we approach God's word this morning. Jesus, thank you for speaking words that are so practical and have the power to transform who we are in this world. We pray that this morning we would hear you speaking clearly and compellingly about your vision for living full and fruitful lives with you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I don't know if this struck anyone else listening to this story this morning, but I, I find this um, conversation between Jesus and the disciples just kind of ridiculous and really darkly funny. Um, just to paint the scene for a minute in which this conversation takes place, Jesus is literally eating his last meal, and he's trying to communicate to his disciples that this is the last time they're ever going to eat together, and he's going to be dead by tomorrow. And he has just told them that one of them is going to betray him. Now, you would think that given that kind of 
amazing catastrophic news, that this would be an opportunity for a bit of sober self-reflection. But instead, this statement from Jesus about what is about to happen is an opportunity for the disciples to begin a debate over which one of them sitting at the table is the most likely to stab Jesus in the back. And it's not like everybody's head just swivels and is like, Judas, that nobody knows. And some people are like, it's got to be Matthew because he's a tax collector. What a slug. And other people are like, Thaddeus, because Thaddeus is always complaining that Jesus preaches too long. And so what, what starts out as a debate where fingers are pointing and they're accusing each other pretty quickly devolves into an argument over which one of them is not just the worst, but the awesomest. I mean, it's got to be Philip because he preaches the best, right? Or James because he performs the greatest miracles. Or Peter, have you tasted his fish tacos? Or John because he's the only one who can stay awake during Jesus' all-night prayer marathons. Now, I, I imagine this scene with the disciples debating who's the greatest, and I just think to myself, like, are you kidding us with this, you guys? I've been to some bad dinner parties, but even I cannot imagine sitting at a table with a group of people who are actively debating out loud who is the greatest human being. Right? It's just like a crazy scene. But as nutty as that sounds, like if you picture it that way, I mean, all of us have probably been somewhere at some kind of a work lunch or some kind of a dinner party where people are jockeying for status and position. Right? You know what this feels like. It feels gross. And all of us have been there. Um, in Jesus' day, this kind of jockeying, it just was really visible and really just said out loud because the way that it worked in Jesus' day is if you went to a dinner party, people were actually seated, their chairs were assigned by their level of social importance and social benefit to the host. So you would go to a dinner party and there would literally be a bottom chair and a top chair. And we have some accounts from this era that even tell us that they were serving different wine at the top of the table than the bottom of the table. The better food got passed out at this end. Right? So, so in this kind of cultural situation, every time you walk into a dinner party, everybody's kind of shuffling around and trying to figure out like what is the highest chair they can get away with without kicking down to the bottom. It's very kind of on the surface, in your face. This is a status competition. Now, Americans are, a, we're a very egalitarian bunch, so that sounds super tacky to us. Like, even if I thought I was the best, I wouldn't take that chair, right? That, that's how we, we work. But, but again, we know what these signals sound like, and they're not actually that subtle when you experience them. Everybody knows what's going on. Like, you sit down to lunch with a bunch of coworkers, and all of a sudden, everybody is name-dropping. Like, who is the most important person that they've had contact with in the last year? Or people start talking about their college in a situation where colleges are not relevant. Or about their vacation, or their expensive new car, or um, this one's really the kicker for me. A competition starts over who is the busiest and the most stressed out, because that is the high status person. Right? Or who, who in the company has access to insider info? Who really knows what's going on and is dropping hints, but isn't actually going to tell you? Like, there's very generic forms of this, but at every community that you're ever a part of, there are all these kind of micro-communities, micro-cultures in the world, and every, every micro-culture has its own status marker. If you are a CrossFitter, if you were into extreme working out, you know, if you sit down with CrossFitters, there's this, like, competition that instantly develops over who did the longest, most miserable workout this week. Right? 
Or, or, you know, if you're in high school, it's like, what is the brand on your sneakers? Um, if you're a Mennonite, maybe it's who is the most important person you are personally related to? Those of you who are stay-at-home moms, like this is the craziest status ecosystem I've ever seen. I watched a video online the other day where this mom was bragging about she'd spent like five hours making homemade organic Cheez-Its. You can buy those for $3 in an off-brand. Right? Like every community has its status marker. It's kind of subtle, implicit way of kind of tugging an elbow at somebody else and being like, I am the awesomest person in this ecosystem and you should know that. This is like one of my pet peeves in life. I hate it when, when I, I'm a part of a group where I, I start hearing this go down and everybody just leaves feeling like gross and sad and tired and small. But the worst part of it is, even though I actively complain about this human dynamic more than anything else humans do, like multiple times in the last couple weeks, I've heard myself doing it. Like I, I've been sitting in settings and, and we're having a conversation and suddenly I'm talking about such and such a project I'm working on with such and such an important person. And there's this voice in the back of my head that is screaming, what are you saying? You are being one of those pretentious jerks that you complain about all the time. But even while the voice in my head is screaming that, my mouth is still moving. I don't even know why I'm doing it, right? So, so why do we do it? Like, let's, let's assume, give me the grace of assuming that I'm not the only person in the room who's had this experience. Like, what are we actually attempting to do when we start participating in those conversations? Like, maybe, maybe some of us are truly convinced that we are the greatest. Um, I'm not really worried about talking to that person because I'm assuming if that is you, you're not listening to me anyway. So we'll leave aside the people who really think they're the greatest separate conversation. What about the rest of us? Well, I, th I think one dynamic is whether or not we actually think we're the greatest, there's the practical matter of good things that go with being respected. Right? Like whatever circle you're a part of, whether it's your office or your church or anywhere else, there's good things that come with status. I remember some years ago, I was at a speaking engagement. I arrived at the hotel and checked in. And about 10 minutes after coming into my room, there was a knock at my door and I opened it. And the hotel concierge presented me with a tray of expensive cheeses. And I was like, this is my moment. I am an important person, and I know it because I have the cheese to prove it. And it was like the greatest feeling I had in my life for about 10 seconds, and all at once I was like, and now I know what I will sell my soul for. The price of my soul is a platter of brie. <laughs> you know, like there are good things that come with status, and we like it. We like the ego strokes, we like the cheese tray, we like the perks. Some of us really like being the decision maker. We like sitting at the table of power. Some of us just want to have the inside info, right? We don't even want to do anything with it. We just want to be there. There are things that go with having status, having honor in communities that are just fun things. So that's one piece, right? It doesn't matter if we're great. Like, we just want the goods that come with being thought of as great. But I think the even more common thing that afflicts a lot of us is that a lot of us walk through the world deeply insecure. There's this voice that's constantly playing in our head that is telling us that we are not good enough. 
We're not a good enough mother. We're not a good enough employee, a good enough business owner. Like, we don't have as much education as other people. We are not as good. And, and so we enter these kind of conversations in a kind of preemptive effort to feel okay, right? To convince ourselves and to convince the people we're talking to that, like, we're, we're all right. We matter. We're good enough. Like, I, I'm pretty sure, given the, the way the disciples' story is shaped, where it starts with the question of who's going to betray Jesus and unfolds into a conversation about who is the greatest, this is an insecurity-driven conversation, right? Like, I'm not sure if it's me, and now I have to come up with a reason why it couldn't possibly be me. Why I really am a great disciple and not a terrible disciple, as I'm secretly afraid that I am. Like, but whatever our reasons are, like, whether it's the perks, whether it's the insecurity, this kind of like status game living is a very exhausting way to go through the world. And perhaps you've noticed this. It's tiring hauling around constant insecurities. It's really tiring always battling, feeling like you have to battle for the better chair. And then as soon as you get the chair, you start worrying that you were in danger of losing it and becoming irrelevant because you're older or because you missed out or because you weren't on social media long enough. Because it's just really tiring to live in that kind of constant state of needing to prove yourself. And the, the other thing about living in this constant honor status game is that it's really isolating because you start to feel like you are in competition with literally every other human being that exists. Like every relationship, there's this voice in the back of your head telling you, this person's smarter than you. This person's prettier than you. This person's better at their job than you. It's really hard to feel close to people and connected with people when it feels like you're constantly competing for who is the best in everything. So what if we could live free of that kind of constant competition? What, what if we could live free of the honor game, free of this kind of scrapping existence where we always have to prove ourselves everywhere all the time to everybody? I mean, this is the conversation Jesus wants to have with his followers. And I, I think his answer to how we start living free of the honor game is pretty unexpected. Because for Jesus, the answer is not to give up being ambitious. For Jesus, there is a desire for greatness, a desire for a life that matters that is actually worth keeping. Jesus is not about shooting down the idea of ambition, but Jesus says that the answer to getting out of the honor game begins when you start recognizing that the world has its story of greatness all mixed up. Right? The, the problem is not ambition. The problem is what the story of greatness actually is. I mean, it is perfectly possible to be the king of the food-eating circuit because you can eat more hot dogs than anybody else in the world. But is it really great to be the person who can eat the most ambiguous meat without vomiting? I mean, we spend all of this time competing in competitions without asking the question, is this thing worth winning? Right? Congratulations on being the most exhausted person in your entire work ecosystem. Congratulations on being the person who spent $150,000 more to get the same job as the person who went to the less known school. 
Congratulations on keeping your house so clean that no one is comfortable sitting on your sofa. And congratulations, having your makeup so perfect that you're literally afraid to have an expression because it might crack your foundation. Congratulations on having an incredible obituary but nobody there to cry at your funeral. Like, we're playing our honor games on the wrong field, and so many of us don't realize until it's way too late how little the competition was worth. We don't stop and ask, is this thing I'm competing in actually worth winning? And Jesus says, I'm going to tell you the kind of game worth winning. I'm going to tell you what true greatness looks like, what is worth your ambition and your effort in your life. And Jesus gives us a, a definition of greatness, of something to aspire to that has two key components. Component number one, This wasn't very subtle, so you probably picked up on this and are now wondering, why do you pay a preacher for this? True greatness is the person who serves. Um, Let's look at verses 25 to 27. Uh, Jesus says to them, The kings of the Gentiles rule over them as their subjects, and those in authority over them are called friends of the people. That phrase, it means a benefactor, somebody who is well thought of because they give big donations to people. Um, But Jesus says, it's not to be that way with you. Instead, the greatest among you must become like a person of low status and the leader like a servant. So which one is greater, the one seated at the table or the one who serves at the table? Isn't it the one seated at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus says, this is what the world gets wrong and upside down. The great one is not the person eating the cheese platter. The great one is the person serving the cheese platter. And that, that's, that's so counterintuitive. That's so counter to the way the world works that it sounds absolutely extraordinary and crazy to say it. But Jesus says, you all are the ones crazy. I'm here to turn the world right side up again. The great one is the one holding the platter. In God's kingdom, the great person is the person who uses whatever power and strength they have in their body, their intellect, their soul, to lift other people up. The great one is the one who lifts. And there's a reason for this, right? Why? Because that's how God behaves. The great person, the person who is behaving like God, is the person who uses all of their power and their strength and their intellect and their resources to lift other people because that's what Jesus does, that's what God does, and Jesus and God define what greatness looks like. Jesus is the great one, is the one who takes the lowest seat at that long table. And why? Not just because they're hoping for a status upgrade if they take the lowest seat, But because if anybody decides to not play the game anymore, to not scrap for the highest seat, the entire hierarchy breaks down once just a few people stop playing. Right? You have that power. It only takes a few people to refuse the game for the whole game to fall apart. If the obviously great person takes the least seat, nobody knows what to do anymore. The system doesn't work. Jesus says the greatest person is the one who gives sacrificially, but who doesn't need the name of benefactor attached to them. The one who gives generously, sacrificially, without putting their name on the plaque. 
That is what true greatness looks like to Jesus. Greatness is being the one who serves. But there's one more kind of component of true greatness that Jesus calls out that is not quite as obvious. You might have missed it on a first reading. Verse 28. Jesus tells his disciples they have actually done something right. He says to them, you are the ones who have continued with me in my trials. This is what you have actually done correctly. What is Jesus saying here in this conversation about greatness? He's saying true greatness is the willingness to stay faithful in the midst of suffering. The disciples have continued with Jesus, unlike a lot of other people, while suffering for it. I find this so fascinating because you never, ever in any conversation hear anyone count as one of the measures of greatness and heroism anybody's ability to suffer. But Jesus says, the willing, your willingness to suffer, to sacrifice, to lose things for the sake of love, for the sake of care for others, to, to make that sacrifice, to suffer in that way, to endure without complaining, without growing bitter, That is a mark of true greatness. Faithful endurance of suffering is how Jesus conquered evil. That's the story of the cross. Faithfully enduring suffering is how Jesus conquers evil. Faithful endurance of suffering is what conquering looks like. It takes an incredible level of courage to win a battle in that way. Who has the true greatness, the courage to suffer faithfully and well? I mean, what does all this look like practically if we were to embrace Jesus' definition of greatness? Um, Well, let me throw out a few examples. Maybe for you it looks like becoming the mom who is less concerned with her own perfection than with actual hospitality to other people in the midst of messy lives. Maybe it looks like the dad who passes up his dream job in order to spend more time prioritizing people in his family or people in his community. Maybe it looks like the business owner who has not the biggest business or the highest profit business, but the business that is best at making its employees flourish. Maybe this looks like doing the dishes when nobody is going to notice or thank you. Maybe this looks like caring for a foster infant who you were holding and you were spending sleepless nights for who will never remember you or know your name. Maybe this looks like making a sacrifice without putting your name on the donor roll. Maybe this looks like letting your reputation take a beating to do the right thing, even if no one else is going to acknowledge it. Maybe this kind of greatness looks like taking a hit and turning the other cheek, not retaliating, even when you know you didn't deserve what happened. In practice, this teaching is so central to what Jesus is kind of inviting his followers into, and it's so hard to choose because it's counterintuitive and costly. And I think the place that it has to start for most of us, we just have to begin by a point of accepting that choosing this form of greatness is going to mean living out of sync with the rest of the world. And it's going to mean investing in things that are not going to get us as much immediate praise and reward. 
Like, we're just going to have to accept from the outset that choosing this form of greatness means living out of sync and less people are going to praise and award it. But the, the lack of praise doesn't mean you're doing something unimportant. The lack of praise simply means the rest of the world has it wrong right now. The world is busy rewarding hot dog eaters. But that doesn't mean you are doing the less important thing. That doesn't mean you are doing the wrong thing. The world is out of step, right? It's a good thing to be out of sync. If we can start by kind of making our peace with that, just being like, okay, we're going to make a choice here for a greatness that is not going to be recognized and rewarded from the front. Like, if if you can really kind of make peace with that in your gut, I think what you're going to find is that there is an incredible level of freedom in living this way. Because all of a sudden, you are no longer ruled by the tyranny of anybody else's expectations. Uh, There's this huge freedom in discovering that you can show up at any table and you can take any seat you want and it can't hurt you. Right? However anybody else evaluates whatever they're going to credit to you or not doesn't matter that much. You can do things without recognition or without credit. You can take blame that isn't yours. You are no longer a hostage of what other people think or what they are willing to credit to you. You can stop eating hot dogs. And you can spend your life doing the stuff that actually matters. Knowing um, that uh, Jesus says, just trusting, he gives the disciples this, this assurance, you're going to be out of sync for a while, people are not going to recognize it, but a moment is going to come in the future when everything is going to be seen and celebrated for what it's actually worth. Right? He says to his disciples, I confer royal power on you just as the Father granted royal power to me. And thus you will eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you'll sit at thrones overseeing the 12 tribes of Israel. If you embrace my definition of greatness, Jesus says, a moment is going to come when everyone is going to finally have their heads on straight. And greatness is going to be seen as it really is. Which means, aspire now not to appear great. Aspire to be truly great. Right? Aspire. Have ambition for the right thing. Not for the appearance of greatness that will fade and fall apart and be exposed for what it is. But aspire for the kind of greatness that marks greatness in the kingdom of God. And a day will come when that will be recognized for what it's worth and God will honor it. What a liberating way to live. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are so thankful for you and for your wise counsel. We confess honestly to you because we can that we have all been competitors in the hot dog eating competition that marks our culture. Competitors in busyness, competitors for the right seat, for the cheese tray, for whatever the thing is that people honor and reward. We've been captive to it. We've been made small because of it. We have made others small pursuing it. Lord, just forgive us for getting caught up in this whole toxic chain. Free us for a truer, more joyful, life-giving life.
of chasing the things that are truly good. The greatness that lifts and inspires. Give us fresh imagination for the kind of ambition that is fully in line with the beautiful kingdom you are bringing. Show us what it means to be people who can suffer well and whose strength lifts others high. Thank you for loving us that way, for spending your power lifting us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.